Good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. It's my privilege to be part of the teaching team here at Seacoast. Um, and uh, it's a joy to open the Word today. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're working our way through this series in the book of 1 Corinthians entitled, Dear Church. And you got to read it that way because this is literally a letter written through the Apostle Paul by God to a church. And not just any church, but a church in an area that as Ryan introduced this place a few weeks ago, we learned this was a very, very influential part of the of the whole Mediterranean world. This church at Corinth was a, was a crossroads. It was a crossroads for ideas, for wealth, for commerce. And it was a very significant church. But yet, because it was a crossroads, it was also a church that carried a lot of cultural baggage, a lot of influence. Now, before we think, yeah, those Corinthians, they, should, they, they shouldn't have had that cult- cultural baggage. Guess what? The, the Corinthian church is really not that different than you and me and Encinitas and North County and the world we live in. We all come out of culture. We all, if we are privileged to come to faith in Christ, which they were coming to faith in Christ, they were not just coming to faith in Christ, but they were getting connected to, to the church of Corinth. Uh, And then as they got connected to the church, they were beginning to learn and be taught by all kinds of gifted teachers, which we learned last week was part of their problem. You know, Matt pointed out to us last week that uh, you you shouldn't get hung up on exactly who your favorite uh, speaker is, who your favorite teacher is, your favorite blogger, your favorite author, although I personally have my favorites, but I'm not going to talk about that. You know, because the reality is we need to be focused on Christ and His Word, That's the foundation that's been laid, the foundation of the gospel. But as that foundation gets laid, it always begins to confront culture. And that's not just true in a place like Corinth with with its many temples to different gods and and its practice of, of temple prostitution and its practice of all kinds of various uh, immoral acts, and, and this, was a, this was a place that was pretty morally messed up. It was a place a lot like modern-day America. It's like us. As you know, Becky and I are also missionaries of the church here and spend a lot of our time going back and forth to different countries. We go to right now to six different countries in Africa training pastors, and every time we go, we have to make this statement, and that is what God wants is for you to wrap the gospel in the beauty of your culture. So it's okay for the church to look different in every country, in every culture, because every culture created by people in the image of God will have some beauty. I mean, the Africans, to be honest, they got beauty. They got beauty, but yet they also have mess, messiness. And every culture has an ugly side and a beauty side. And if it's following God, it's a beauty side. If it's in disobedience to God and moving away from the truth of God and who he is and who we are and and what his desires for his his people, then there's an ugly side to every culture. And, And I always tell them, I'm not here to ask you to follow an American culture, that's for sure, because we're messed up, you're messed up. And what we're all trying to do is to create a new culture called the church, the kingdom of God on planet earth. 
So we have a kingdom that's bigger and better than America or Africa or Kenya or Ethiopia or, or, or Western Europe or anywhere in the world. It's, a, it's the culture of Christianity, true Christianity, not just American Christianity. What's it mean when our culture begins to collide with God's desire for his people? And those collisions are going to be happening all the way through this series. Now, last week, Matt did a great job of pointing out one of those collisions, and that is it's not about following awesome speakers and teachers. Don't follow people, follow Christ. Don't build a foundation for your life by yourself, because the foundation for life is the good news that Christ has come and died for us and given us freedom in Christ, forgiveness in Christ. He has laid the foundation. As he quoted last week, he says, there is only one foundation that's already been laid. You can't lay another one. Christ is the foundation for life. But knowing that, what's next? If Christ has already done it, then what are we supposed to do beyond just showing up on Sunday and worshiping, which is a great tradition, a great Uh, Not just tradition, it's a great discipline in our lives. It's taught in Scripture. We're going to see that. But what is next? How should we build on that foundation that uh, chapter 3 talked about last week, laid totally by Christ, not you and me? How do we build with wisdom? Father, I pray that as we study your word now that you would um, help us understand how to build not how to build our own salvation, not how, not how to build uh, and, and create a, a way to reach you, but you have reached us, you have come down to us, you have died and rose from the dead, you have laid the foundation. Now, would you teach us who we are and how we are to build on top of that? In Christ's name, amen. So pick it up with me, pick it up with me. Last week, Matt left off in verse 23, just to set the context where he says, look, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Christ is secure in his relationship with his heavenly father and you are just as secure because you belong to Christ. Elsewhere, Paul often uses the phrase, you are in Christ and Christ in you, right? Okay, so with you in Christ, Christ in you, you are secure in his love, held there by his grace. You don't earn it then in response to that, how should we then think about ourselves and what impact does it have in our life? We've given you an outline. If you want to follow with me, it'll help you follow along. Pick it up with me, though, in verse 1. He says, therefore, he's saying this, let a man regard us, Paul pointing to himself and Apollos and the other teachers, the other leaders. So let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Notice I got a clean conscience, yet I'm not by this acquitted But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both 
bring to light things that are hidden in darkness and disclose even the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Let's pull up there for a minute. When Paul starts this passage, if you follow the structure of it, what he is saying first is he gives his big idea in the very first verse. In fact, if he just said that and quit, we could spend the entire time this morning on that. So I don't want to jump over it. In verse 1, he says, so how are you to think of us? If we're not the master teachers, if we're not the foundation of your faith, if Christ is all of that, if Christ has laid the foundation, then how are we to think about ourselves as the ones teaching you, pastoring you, leading you? And he says this, regard us in this manner, and he gives two key phrases, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, when he says this, the first question I've got to ask is, wait a minute, he says, okay, think of me, and later he mentions Apollos also, so he's referring to them as their leaders in this way, so maybe this doesn't even apply to you, maybe this is only written to people who are pastors, but we find out in verse 6, jump down there quickly, he says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. In other words, this is a lesson for you, church. This is not just for me and Apollos. This is actually true for all of us, but I'm just using me and Apollos as an, as an illustration in this, that even though we appear to be the leaders in reality, in reality, here's what we are. We think of ourselves as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Those two key phrases capture the essence of Paul's identity as a, as a Christian. And it's, I believe it's true of all of us. That once you become a follower of Christ, you're walking in his grace. You're not trying to earn it from him. That's religion. Christianity is the free gift of salvation. Once you have that gift, how are we to think about ourselves? Servants of Christ, number one. The implications of this being a servant of Christ and steward of the mysteries... They're going to be explained in verses 2 through 21. The rest of this chapter goes into more detail on what that means. But the big idea, and this is something that I know when, uh, when, when Pastor Ryan led us through our Old Testament series and we looked at some of the patriarchs, one of the common things that you often heard all the way back from when God selected and called Abraham, remember that? He called Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a what? Blessing. I want to bless you so you can be a blessing. It's a theme that flows all the way through what it means to be a Christ follower. We receive from God, but then with the reception of God's gifts, he wants us to turn around and use them, not just to enrich our own lives, but to be a blessing to the world that he cares about so much. So he says, number one, my identity is, here's my role. I am a servant of Christ. Notice he doesn't say, I'm a servant of the church. He doesn't say that I'm a servant of other people. He says, I am a servant of Christ. And the implications of that we're going to see in a minute. Number two, he also says, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. That's a great phrase. I like that. But to understand it, it's not a word that we use a lot of times in English. Like, hey, how many of you are stewards? You know, that's not a common English phrase. So what is a steward? Well, Jesus used it. 
And let me just refresh your memory. Jesus told a parable of the stewards in which he said that a very wealthy man that had a lot of wealth and land and money, he selected several people to be stewards of his estate. And he gave each of them a certain amount of money. And he said, invest it and multiply it. You can live off of it, but make sure that you're, you're growing my investment because it's really mine. I'm not giving it to you. I'm loaning it to you. So in our culture today, what would be the closest thing to that that you think about? Probably like an investment manager, right? Most of us, if you have any bit of little, I have a very little, little investment pot, and I entrust that to a company and a, and a manager, and they're allowed to move it around and do things with it, but the goal is I want them to make money for who? You bet. Now, if they, if they peel off enough to live off of, they got to make a living, but I want them to grow my investment. So a steward is a person, in fact, I'll put it up as a definition it's a person who is entrusted with something of value, not to own it, but to invest it, to manage it for the advancement of the owner. Now, think of your life that way, because he says, we are servants of Christ. We are stewards of the mysteries of God, stewards of the mysteries of God. So in this case, uh, and the concept of stewardship as Christ's followers could be applied to money, could be applied to uh, gifting and talents that God has given you, uh, could be applied to opportunities that God places in front of you. Uh, it could be any of that, and it is in Scripture. But here, you know, he's, he's specifically talking about you are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, think about that. Imagine... If God came down and said, I want to tell you who I am, I want to tell you um, where everything came from, I want to tell you who you are as a person, that you're not just um, a blip in, in the universe, you're not just uh, pond scum that grew up and matured into a human being. You're not just from dirt going back to dirt, and in the meantime, you make a carbon footprint. You're not that. You are a spiritual being created with a soul that is eternal, made in the image of God, but yet you, because of sin, we've all fallen, so we're struggling and we're all broken but yet I love you. You are my creation. And I desire that you not just be my creation, but become my child. And you become a child of God, not just by being born out of a womb. You become a child of God by being born in a relationship with God, by putting faith in Christ. In fact, Jesus used the metaphor, you are born again. You are born spiritually. You're born into the family of God. You are, dear folks, if you have placed your faith in Christ, We've already learned in this book, you have his spirit, you are his child, and you are loved. You are loved. And there's nothing you can do that will take away God's love. That's your identity in Christ. But then he says, and guess what? I'm entrusting to you the mysteries of God. For most of the world today, when people wake up, 
God is not clear. In fact, God is, to a large degree, to most of the population on planet Earth, God is a mystery. He's still a mystery. Um, at best, he is a guess. When I meet people and I say, so what do you think about God? Often is, well, good grief, how do I know? How do I know? Uh, this past week, um, I had the chance to, uh, I had to go out of town for just two days um, and meet with some pastors, and, and that was okay. Meeting with pastors often can be very boring, okay, because they're boring folks. Not our pastors, but other pastors. <laughs> but what's really fascinating, I'm just kidding, okay, I like these pastors. But what was really fascinating weren't the pastors, it was, it was, it was literally the uh, the, the one, the, the about an hour and a half flight. I went to a very exotic place. It's called Fresno, California. Uh, and actually, it was a three for one. I got to go to Fresno, Bakersfield, and Merced. So to me, that is like the, tr the trinity of the, central, of the Central Valley, right? Okay. So, you know, so I got to visit people in all three. Okay. I'm not, how many of you did I just insult? How many of you <laughs> grew up? How many of you grew up in the Central Valley? Raise your hand. Okay. A few of you. Great. How many of you wish you still lived there? Ah, you did. Okay, one of you. That's, we've got a recovery s group for you. But anyway, now, so the reality is, uh, while there, though, it's only, it only like a one-hour flight to LAX, another one-hour flight up to F Fresno, and had two conversations. You know, I, I, I was privileged to sit next to a person from Iran uh, actually, a, a person with their PhD in electrical engineering, very, very sharp, highly educated. And we had a, a fun little conversation. I just said, tell me about yourself, if you don't mind. If not, I'll leave you alone, but, you know, it's a short flight. And they, they were ready to talk. And, and, uh, but basically, short version is, uh, grew up in Iran, uh, left to get out of the country uh, went to Malaysia, got the master's degree, got the PhD, and with the PhD from Malaysia, was able to get into the U.S. and and uh, and now they live live up in this area and and teach at the university in Merced. But as we talked, the, I just said, if you don't mind me asking, I know from Iran, some people grow up in a Christian environment, others grow up in a Muslim environment and family, and others maybe grow up with in no faith. And I said, if you don't mind, tell me about your childhood. And she said, well, I've, my family are all Muslim. They've all grown, I've grown up Muslim. She said, but to be honest, uh, it's kind of an ethnicity thing and I no longer practice. And as we had this conversation, it was very clear that she just said, you know, to me, in fact, the exact quote was, I still believe in God. I just don't know what he's like. Now, I would say that that conversation was a micro-conversation that would represent you with a lot of your friends here in Encinitas or Carlsbad or anywhere you live around here or when you go to work or you go to school. Most people in our culture, and the majority of people still believe in God, but yet they often say, but you know, uh, but who knows? So I'm taking my best shot at God, just making a guess based on what I've heard or read or this or that. And the fact is this, this passage says, guess what, men and women? God says, I'm entrusting to my church. You hold it like a steward, the mysteries of God. Now, go take it to the world. Go take it to the world. 
Now, I'd like to tell you I was able to bring this person to faith and blah, 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 but I didn't do that. But yet, hopefully, it was one step in the right direction as I encouraged them to investigate not just Christianity, but Jesus, to read Jesus, read the Gospels, because I believe that Jesus came to reveal God to us. The mystery was real. That's why Jesus is nicknamed the light of the world. And the light has come to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death so that the light comes on. And that's an incredible privilege. If we stopped right here, I'd say, think of yourself differently. As a Christ follower, there's two things. Am I serving Christ? I'm designed to be his servant, and I am designed to possess the mysteries of God and do something with them. That's who we are now as Christ followers. And God does want us to do something with it. In fact, one concept of stewardship is this. Stewardship always has accountability. In fact, in last week's chapter, in chapter 3, verse 8, Matt read this verse where it says, now, it says, actually, now, he who plants, he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are fellow workers with God. We're fellow workers with God. What a privilege. So there is accountability. So in eternity, by the way, God will examine our lives. Um, if we were to go on into 2 Corinthians, just write this reference down, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, describe a judgment that isn't a judgment like, oh, oh, oh you're going to be judged for your sins to see if you get into heaven or not. No, that's secured by the grace of God, but it is called the Bema judgment. And he writes to these same Corinthians in his second letter and says, this is how God will evaluate our lives and we will be rewarded for our labor and for our, our service and serving Christ uh, our rewards will be a little different. Now, what that looks like in heaven and eternity, I'm not sure. All I know is it's, it's a fact. So as we follow Christ, just know that our lives do matter to God, and he will someday evaluate how we build on this foundation. So servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. So give me a few tips on what that means for how I can actually live this out. And as I look at verses 2 through 21, we don't have time to go through them in detail, but let me give you the four big ideas that I see there, and I'll show them to you. Number one, this is maybe the most important, is in verse 2, that the requirement for being a steward is that you be found faithful. That's it. You're not going to be judged or evaluated based on results, except for faithfulness. Verse 2, in this case, moreover, verse 2, chapter 4, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. It could be translated faithful. In other words, be a good steward. Take whatever God has entrusted you with, and that's different for every one of us in the room, and do something with it. Faithfully do what God gives you opportunity to do and what he calls you to do. It'll be different for every one of us. So God is not going to judge us based on our ability, but our faithfulness. Not on our ability. It's been said years ago, I heard the statement, God's not looking for our ability. He has plenty of that. He is looking for our availability. He wants us to be available to be used by him. I grew up uh, 
as a college student in the ministry of a thing called Campus Crusade for Christ, and they used to talk a lot about this. And one thing they would say is this, that success in witnessing or sharing the mysteries of God, this was their definition. I never forgot it. I never stopped believing it. I think it's biblical. Sharing Jesus Christ faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. See, that's a great definition. Now, you could change sharing Jesus Christ to serving Jesus Christ because it's not just about sharing the gospel. It's about using your talents, your gifts, your abilities, your funds, your resources, whatever, uh, to serve Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Leave the results up to God. First time I ever heard this, you know what they called it? They, they called it the great pressure release because sometimes we feel the pressure. I've got to make it happen. I've got to make someone come to faith. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to make sure that I'm effectively serving. I've got, to, I've got to grow the church. See, you don't want Pastor Ryan or our elders or anybody else feeling that it's up to them to grow the church. Remember Paul said last week, look, Apollo, you know, some water, some plant, God brings the growth. We heard that just last week. So, you know, trusting God with results is just kind of like, it kind of takes the pressure off. It's a pressure release. But yet it doesn't release us from accountability to be faithful. So the question is simply, are we being faithful to use what God entrusts to us to grow his kingdom? That's the question. Number two, it leads to whose opinion matters. The requirement is faithfulness. The opinion that matters is Christ, not others, and not even ourselves. Look at verse 4, 3 and 4. He says, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. You know, the Corinthians were big on judging who they liked and didn't like, or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I don't think that means that Paul's saying, I don't uh, try to monitor my, my own life and how I'm doing. But what he's saying is, what others think of me doesn't matter. And even what I think of me doesn't matter. Because I can think I'm doing great and I can be doing really crappy. You know, the, the, so, so whose opinion matters? Four, verse four, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. Yet by this, I'm not acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. It's Christ. Therefore, don't go passing judgment, that is, on one another before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. The Lord will return someday. He will bring to light the things hidden in darkness, disclose even the motives of our hearts. Man, that's convicting. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. It will only be whatever praise God has for my life that matters. And if everybody else in the world thinks that uh, I'm, I'm going the wrong way or doing the wrong thing, and, and if I know that I am pleasing Christ, I can sleep well at night. And that's really how God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to live trying to impress or please people. And that's part of our culture. I know in my case, I'm a people pleaser. I like for you to like me. So if you don't like me, don't tell me. I'm just kidding, kind of. No, I'm serious. Okay? 
you know, uh, but, but the point is, it's easy. Many of us are growing up in a culture, a family, where we're trying to please our parents and our teachers and our, our pastors, and, and even that we're just trying to, well, even to please God can get out of whack if you don't watch it. Actually, there's nothing wrong with living to please God. In fact, the Apostle Paul later on will say, therefore, I, uh, whether here or absent or present with you, in his next letter to this very church, he will say, therefore, I live to please Christ. But there's a difference in living to please Christ because you're trying to earn his love and living to please Christ in response to his love. Got it? It's a very important distinction. See, it's, okay. it, it's not okay to live seeking to please God, to earn something from him and to, to, to feel that he'll love me more if I please him more. No, 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 he loves you because you belong to Christ. That's the last verse of chapter three. Just read it. You're in Christ. You're secure in his love. You walk and breathe in his love. So, so whatever you do for him doesn't earn his love, but can you put a bigger smile on his face? Yes. It's just like any of us who have been parents. You have children. You love your kids, whether they're being good or bad, I hope. You have an unconditional love for your kids. But, you know, sometimes your kids can make you cry. In fact, the Bible calls it grieving the Holy Spirit. So now you can God, you, we can cause God grief or we can put a smile on his face. You know, and, and part of that is we're in a relationship with a real living heavenly father who has emotions. But just realize, the opinion that matters in the end of our lives is one. We live to please one, and it really simplifies life. Number three, so the requirement that matters is be faithful. The opinion that matters is Christ, not others. The attitude that matters, therefore, is humility, since every gift we have is actually a gift from God. Look at verse six. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what's written. And I think what he's saying there is a lot of their teachers were adding to Scripture. They were adding their own ideas to, uh, to what was written and, and what was being developed as the Scriptures were being written and shared. He says, don't be adding to God's Word. And be arrogant of how smart you are. Don't try to outthink God. So stay humble so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? Implication, no one. What do you have that you did not receive? That is, from God. And if you did, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You know, it's kind of like one of the things that's common for people that teach and preach in front of crowds is on the way out the door, people will often come up to any one of us on the teaching team and, and they'll say, oh, wow, man, I, I, really, I really appreciate what you said today. Dale, that was so insightful, blah, blah, blah. You know, and one of, one of the things all of us need to remember is, you know something? They're all God's ideas and I just talk about them. God is the source of all the wisdom that we have. 
And yeah, we can do our best to prepare and teach it well and everything else. But at the end of the day, if it wasn't for the word and the wisdom of God, me and Matt or Ryan or Nathan or anyone else up here, we got nothing to offer you but God's wisdom. And the result is, if you realize every gift, ability, or resource that I have has been given to me by God, that promotes humility. When I begin to think, or you begin to think, that anything you have, let's take success in your career. If your success in your career even, you begin to think, well, look what I've done. As soon as any success happens, you hit an attitudinal um, crossroads. If it's all your own doing, it will promote pride. But if you realize that the very brains, education, opportunities, whatever that you have were a gift from God, then it leads to praise. So with humility, you praise God when you succeed in something, but if it's pride, uh, you're in trouble. And the pride will walk you away from God, the humility will draw you closer to him. So be careful because success in any part of our life is usually the first step toward potential failure. Just remember that. Humility was the goal. And then last of all, he gives us, so what example do you follow? And this one kind of surprised me. In verses 8, especially through 16, he says this, Therefore, humbly learn from your spiritual fathers. Stay teachable. And I just want you to pick up the essence of this because in down in verse 14, he gives us what he's saying. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were, you may have countless teachers or tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Now, that sounds kind of arrogant for the Apostle Paul to say, therefore, imitate me. But you've got to understand, Paul uses this phrase elsewhere in Scripture. And what he always says elsewhere, he usually has a second half to it, which is implied here. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because all of us need Christ as our ultimate role model. That's clear. But all of us also, to be honest, in humility, we need real people with real flesh and real blood trying to walk a real walk of faith, stumbling, getting up, but people we can learn from. So be teachable to your, not just your pastors, but to mentors have a spiritual father, a spiritual mother in your life of someone who's been there, done that, and they're not perfect by any means, but yet you can learn from them if they are modeling, following Christ. We all need to be connected. It's why I love Rooted, for example. It's the first step toward learning how to connect into the life of the church. If you've never been through it, next hour, go upstairs to Rooted. It's why it's great to be in our life group system because you, you, can, you can meet and build friendships and, and have spiritual mentors, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers in our lives. And you never outgrow the need for that. So Paul is saying, stay humble, stay teachable, 
and listen to someone who may just be a little bit wiser than you and let them point you to follow Christ. So what have we said? As a Christ follower, you do nothing to lay your foundation. It's laid by the grace of God. But as we begin to build on it, two things. How can I serve Christ? Am I serving Christ with my time, my talents, my money, my resources? And if not, begin to say, God, show me where I can plug in. Where can I serve? And then secondly, am I being a steward of the glorious mysteries of the grace of God? Or am I just taking God's grace and living in it every day? Or do I care about the people that I meet along the journey? Whether they're from Iran or whether they're from Carlsbad or the outer reaches of Escondido, the other most parts of the earth. I'm just kidding. Bakersfield even, right? Love them enough to give them your answer that has been entrusted to you of the mysteries of God. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for, um, for the gifts you've given us. We, Father, uh, like the Corinthians, are a gifted church. You've given us gifted teachers. You've given us wisdom from you. And you've unlocked the mysteries of God through your word and through the coming of Christ. But Father, may we uh, not, just, not just be content to bask in your blessing, but may we be committed to serve you. I pray, Father, that you might lead each one of us to think right now, how can I better serve Christ? Where can I serve him? What can I share that he has entrusted to me for the good of his kingdom as a faithful steward? We ask you to work through us as a church uh, to bring those mysteries to light all through our community, and even all around the world. In Christ's name, amen.